Jude. We're going to take a look at the first four verses. But first, let's, uh, let's say a word of prayer, because I need help. God, we do. We thank you for Chuck. We thank you for the work that you did through Chuck. We thank you that ultimately his ministry was about you. Everything he did was about you. Till he was 86, stricken with lung cancer, had a hard time walking, at times a hard time breathing. He was about you. He was about you. And so we pray that this morning would too be about you. Everything in the Bible is about you, so I pray that you would enlighten us, you would show us your heart, show us your love, your mercy, your grace. I need your grace to teach. We all need your grace to learn. And so we pray for that this morning as we jump into this book of Jude. In Jesus' name, amen. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jude is essentially short for Judas, okay? How many of you guys, anyone here named Michael? It goes by Mike, right? Christopher, that goes by Chris. There's actually six gentlemen in the New Testament named Judas. Six. And so in order to not be confused with what? The most infamous of all, Judas's. Jude goes by Jude, and he's actually the half-brother of Jesus. As he says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Two B words, but notice, he could have said the brother of both. But notice the relationship is different for Jude. You need to know something about Jude. Jude did not believe Jesus was God until the resurrection. Did you know that? His own family lived with him, grew up with him. It's like, really? The guy I had bunk beds with? I'm not buying it, right? <laughs> Jesus was his brother. They grew up together. They played games together, cards, stayed up late. And even his family at times struggled with the person and work of Jesus. Jude was there. He saw the ministry. He saw the healings, the miracles. But it wasn't until Jesus was put into the ground and resurrected that he was no longer just the half-brother of Jesus. He was now the servant of a living king. And so he says, look, you need to remember me as the servant of Jesus, not the brother. And we would pull the family card, right? You would pull the family card quick. You're like, hey, I'm, uh, I'm related to the big guy. Okay, that's how, that's how we would start the letter. L- hey, listen, right? I bunked with Jesus. That, that's how you would start, the, that's how I would start the letter. Listen up, I'm important. He says, no, you, need to, you just need to know that, that I serve Christ. And I'm the brother of James. But I serve Christ. And we're going through Revelation with, with, with the young adult ministry. And last night we took a look at Revelation 4, which is the throne room. And when I see Jude, who saw his brother murdered, saw his brother put into the ground, and then saw his brother defeat death, and he turns and he becomes from a non-believing half-brother to but a bondservant in front of a living king. I realized his perspective had changed. Of course, his faith had changed. But as we talked about last night, and, and I don't, I, I'm not diminishing the cross one bit. Please understand that. I, I in no way intend to diminish the cross in one bit. We preach Christ crucified. 
But you know that thousands of years ago that event took place and every day we're creeping closer to the Jesus of what? Revelation. We're getting farther from the cross. We're getting farther from the, the subservient, the, 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 the suffering servant of a savior that came and washed feet. And we love that Jesus. And we're to emulate that Jesus. His public ministry was the model for the church. But every day, have you read Revelation? Start with chapter 19, it's my favorite. Okay? Start with one. Okay, so every day, every day, we are getting farther from the suffering Savior and closer to the reigning King. And Jesus took a beating once, never again. Never again. Thousands of years. And so a lot of times, I challenge the college group, a lot of times we focus on that Jesus. Don't get me wrong. Again, I'm not diminishing that. But a lot of times it's at the expense of where Jesus currently is in his current state, which is on a throne. And I joked with him last night. You know what he's doing? He's sharpening his sword. That's like his hobby right now. (laughs) Shing, shing. Yeah? You gotta read Revelation. Hey, men's study as well. Tuesday nights, they're doing Revelation. Hop into that, gentlemen. Bob Shewitt, Pastor Mark, right? Those guys are teaching through Revelation as well. You can't get away from Revelation right now. I'm so excited, right? Okay, virtually every ministry is doing it. But that's, it's not the different Jesus. This isn't modalism. But you need to know that was a chapter in Christ's ministry that closed. We learn from it, we glean from it, we're redeemed by it. But every day we're closer to the Jesus of Revelation. And Jude now says, look, I was this non-believing half-brother of Jesus, but now I see a risen almighty king and I'm but a servant in his kingdom. And so he's had an entire change, an entire perspective. Everything has been upheaved in front of him as his brother rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to his throne. And that's an amazing perspective. And so he doesn't necessarily need to be known as the brother of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm but a servant and I'm the brother of James to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Called. You're called. You're predestined. You're elect. How do I know if I'm elect? Chances are if you're asking that question, you're elect. Because guess what? The people that aren't elect aren't asking that question. How do I know? You probably, I can't say for sure, but if you're tussling with that idea, there's probably God going, hey, listen up. You're called, but what does a call require? An answer. This isn't God forcing. This isn't God imposing. God never proposes, or he never imposes his grace and his mercy, but he always proposes it. It's never imposed, it's proposed. It's there, it's a gift. You have but to receive it. And you have to accept it. You have to answer the call. And it says this, it says, sanctified. Which is the idea of being holy. What does holy mean? Set apart. What's the opposite of holy? Separated. Pharisee means separated one. Jesus was holy, Pharisees were separated. So we sing holy, holy, holy. We don't sing Pharisee, Pharisee, Pharisee is the Lord God Almighty. Or separated, separated, separated. That's the God of Gnosticism. 
The God of Gnosticism is one that can have nothing to do with anything material. And so he separates and he puts up this wall of division and between material and spiritual and he sends little spiritual darts down that dodge the gatekeepers. And you think I'm making this up. It's, it's not a sci-fi fiction. This is what Gnosticism teaches. And they separate from material and you get these darts in there so that people can understand a bit of the spiritual world, but God has nothing to do with it. That's not the God we serve. God has everything to do with humanity. He created humanity. He created creation, though he's not creation. And thank God we don't serve a God that's separated from us. We do serve one that is set apart. And so as Christians, immediately the model is this. It's that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. And we love the not of the world, and we focus on that. I'm not of the world, I'm not, but are you even in the world? What do you mean? We'll get to it. And he says, you're sanctified, you are set apart, but that does not mean that you are separate. That's what the Pharisees did. They would go one block over and not even walk down a street of a leper. They couldn't have anything to do, anything in sight of the dirty. Jesus shows up and puts his hands on them. I'm set apart and I'm perfect, but I'm not separated. And so to be holy is very different than separate. We are set apart as Christians, as called to the faith. We are not separated in the faith. And he says, preserved in Jesus Christ, verse two, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. See, we we think a lot of these things just needed to be added to us. It's like a one-time injection. We get it and then we move on. We add it to our arsenal. No, it's that these things continue to be multiplied. They continue to be more and more robust. And this is gonna be, this is gonna be a challenging little book. It is, it, it packs a little punch. And what we're gonna be uncovering is this understanding of contending for the faith. And you're contending because there are what? Things that are offending the faith. And so verse three, it says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you. This is by my account, the only book where the author declares this isn't what I wanted to write about. He says, I actually wanted to talk to you about our common salvation. Not common as in cheap, but common as in that it keeps us in common, yes? Not cheap. But he says, hey, look, I showed up to the pen and the paper. I wanted to write about common salvation, about the faith, and by grace you've been saved through faith. And then I was redirected. And that's how God works. I don't even know. How how many letters maybe did Jude write, right? All of a sudden he's just, think of that testimony. He's probably writing to everyone like, bro, I didn't even believe him. But he just went up to heaven, Right? (laughs) Jude's like, you gotta listen. How many letters did he write in his own vanity and then God shows up. He's like, I wanna write to you about common salvation and God says, I have a different plan. Write what I want you to write and you'll make the Bible, right? That's probably, that's, maybe that's a conversation God had. You'd do that too. He'd be like, okay, just give me the notes, right? So he shows up, he says, look, I wanted to write to you about common salvation and that's a great story. That's a great truth, But he said, look, I need you. In the spirit, I need you to write something else to the church. I need you to equip the church with your testimony. I need you to embolden the people with a different message. 
And so the Holy Spirit, which authors scripture, we see that Second Peter 1, who interprets scripture, 1 Corinthians 2, helps us in our weakness, Romans 8, guides us in truth, John 16, anoints us to proclaim the good news in Luke 4, empowers the church, Luke 24, 1 Thessalonians 1, regenerates and sanctifies and seals and strengthens and teaches and testifies to Jesus. And all that he does, he says, this is the letter I want you to write to the church, that they're to contend for the faith that they're to contend for the faith. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. And the word here literally means, in the Greek, from the mat. It's to wrestle, from the mat. Who are the high school wrestlers in the room? Myself included, right? We're a weird bunch, first of all, okay? Singlet, guy on guy. It's a little weird, right? Okay? I've heard it, especially out here in California. I'm from the Midwest where it's like, it's like football in Texas. Wrestling in Minnesota, it's the deal, all right? It's, it's the deal in Minnesota, right? Friday night lights, big mat light comes down. Just like one light in the whole school. It's epic. We run around in circles and stare off and it's epic, right? Out here, it's like, really? You did the, the thing with the singlets? Really? A little different on the West Coast. I get it. I've seen the videos. It looks a little weird, but okay. But this is the idea. And the wrestlers in the room know. You know why a match is only six minutes long? Because you can't go much longer than that. People are like, football's tough. It's like three hours long, and they get timeouts and pads and water breaks. It's, are you kidding me? Stop it. Wrestling, nothing, six minutes. You and that guy contending. Wrestling to the mat. From the mat. And this is this idea that, look, this is, the faith is actually something worth tussling about. And so we're going to see, especially next week when we do the biggest chunk of this book, you're going to see that it's going to be a punch in the gut to false doctrines and false beliefs and false practices. And this is the heart that the Holy Spirit has, is the church needs to be in power. Yes, there is a call to contend for the faith because it's worth it. You notice that you only protect things that are worth it, right? You don't walk into like a museum and there's like, oh yeah, we let security go home. We turned off the cameras. It's cool. Just look around. Let the front desk know if you need anything, you know? No, you're, you're, you're contending for that art. You're protecting that art. The church is what? A bulwark for truth. We don't define the truth, but we defend it. The Bible defines the truth. People mistake that. So the church is the bulwark for truth. It doesn't mean you come up with it. A bulwark is a wall-like structure raised in defense of something, not in the definition of something. And so we are, we're called to defend and contend for this faith because the world needs it. They're broken and fractured. They need to be called. They need to be sanctified. They need to be preserved as we are. And so, look, here's the honest truth. I'm one of these guys that doesn't mope through my day-to-day life crying about the persecuted church in Thousand Oaks, California. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't mope through life. Like, this is just everything coming down from Washington. It's just, can we, can we stop that for a little bit? There's some offensive policies being put down, but what was the last time a government official stopped you from practicing your faith? You know? And you might have some little things. I get that. But honestly, really, you're going to take that experience overseas? Sit in a room with the persecuted church in China and tell them about your woes? Newberry Park's terrible. Why? They came up with this law in Washington, D.C., and I don't like it, and I read Drudge Report, right? And we just, they're like, stop. They're meeting in this underground church. I went to Rome. I went to the catacombs, right? Sanctuary, 
hallways leading away from the sanctuary, what were they lined with? What was the smell when they were worshiping? Dead Dead bodies. How about we just like get rid of the bookstore and just put in a few tombs? (laughs) Right? That's a bad day at church, right? Like, what 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 is in the wall, right? It's not what, it's who, okay? And that's the persecuted church. Go to Rome, go underground. People talk about the underground church. It's a literal thing in other countries. Jesus, the name of Jesus has been banned in other countries. It's a faith worth contending for. And again, I'm not this guy that's saying, look, we've got it tough. But at the same time, we don't neglect the contention here in Thousand Oaks when it's easy. Because I'll tell you this, it's only going to get harder. That's just with the sweep of all of history. It's only going to get harder. There's no easier day to be a Christian than today. Okay? But yes, we do want to contend for the faith. Well, well, what does that look like? How does that sound? I've seen the studies. Most people are spiritual, believe in God. It's true. Okay? I'm a numbers nerd, so I have some numbers. Okay? I pulled it from a Pew Forum on Religious and Public Life. You can look it up in USA Today. It was a couple years ago. They picked it up. They ran it through. The average American... In general, 92% of people believe in a God. 70% believe many religions lead to eternal life. By the way, all religions lead to eternal life. You're going to die, okay? They just don't all lead to eternal life in heaven, okay? 55% of people believe in a guardian angel. You guys seen that, that, uh, that license plate frame? I only drive as fast as my guardian angel can fly. You seen that? I've seen it. I'm on a motorcycle. I read all those things. Is he stopping, right? 52% believe in prophetic dreams. 67% claim to have had a spiritual experience, an actual interaction with either a demon, an angel, or a visit from God. What does this amount to? A very, very spiritual America. It's true. Very, very spiritual America. What else is very spiritual though? Paganism. It's very spiritual. It's just a buffet. So yeah, we got it all. Pick and choose. We may not disagree about how or where or when or where we end up going, but you know what? It's cool. Go for it. It's paganism. This is American paganism. There are no actual concrete answers. There's what's good for me is good for me. You can pick your own assortment. We take a look too at professing Christians. Okay, now we hone this one in a little bit. The next slide is American Christians. 20% believe in spiritual energy exists in mountains and trees. It's pantheism. That God can be experienced through creation. He's not Lord over creation. He's not the creator. He's part of creation. It's the, one of the ultimate lies. One of the ultimate lies. 20% of Americans sitting in a church right now would agree God's spiritual energy is permeating from a tree. Pantheism. Paganism. This is American paganism. Do we have to contend for the faith? You better believe it. 16% believe in an evil eye. That if you give someone the stink eye, that you actually place a curse on them. (laughs) Any parent that's had kids would know you would be ruined by now. My three-year-old came out of bed at like 6.40 this morning, walked out and goes, 
I'm like, yeah, I'm up too, right? He's like, I'm like, oh, imagine if that had actual like, spiritual ramifications. You've met Ethan for crying out right? Oh, another one. 20%, and I'm not meaning to pick on Catholics, 20% of Catholics believe in reincarnation. Karma. You didn't get it right the first time, you're gonna come back and try it again. That's misery. That's misery. It is. Because guess what? You're never gonna get it right. Miserable. Then we go to this. This is a curious part. I read through it. This is a separate, this is the National Survey of Youth and Religion. I don't know how this went down. I'll show you why. Because they've somehow categorized these are the people that are young evangelicals and only 16% of them say they're evangelical. Okay? Look, the youth needs help. Okay? Youth need, that's why I'm in the college ministry. Kids need help these days. Okay? Now, 77% of young evangelicals, a good chunk of those people are sitting in Calvary chapels today. Right? Pastor Chuck led one of the most massive movements in evangelicalism, in American Protestantism, by all accounts, thousands of churches, nationally, internationally. A young church. It's a young church. He started with hippies. He was a radical because he wore a Hawaiian shirt to church. He didn't force them to shave. Right? Like, those were the radical things that he did. He believed the Bible was literally the word of God. You read the New York Times whole bit on it, or LA Times, and they're like, he was a Bible literalist, right? Like, he believed that homosexuality is wrong, that hell exists, and the Armageddon is going to happen. Like, that's how they're going to phrase him as like a radical, right? 77% of these young evangelicals say they believe in God. Holy smokes. Are you evangelical? Yeah. Oh, but just three-fourths of us believe in God. 58% say they're Protestant, right? Because they have no theological instruction, no proper understanding of the fact that, yeah, you're an evangelical, you're coming from Protestant theology. Read the Protestant Reformation. Just go back, dig through it a little bit. We don't, we're lazy. 16% say they're evangelical. I don't get that. It's probably because they, I don't know. They got them into the study and then they didn't want it on paper. I don't know. Do you have an insight on it? Yeah, and that could be it too. That could be that it's evangelical in nature as opposed to like the actual title. I'm not too fond of titles, to be honest. Um, I just like the ones that Jesus has. But 16% say they're evangelical. You're right. That could be in terms of evangelism, okay? 74% say Christianity is the only true religion. Guess what that means? 26% don't. 26% of young evangelicals sitting in a church this morning that believe the word of God, love Jesus, say... It's not the only true religion. We, we, don't have, we don't need contention for this. You don't have to be persecuted to see sort of demonic influence in modern culture. 51% disagree with moral relativism. Guess what that means? 49% do agree with moral relativism. They show up and they say, look, I absolutely believe there are no absolutes. There are no absolutes and I believe that absolutely. That's what they say. Say there are no absolutes. Question, do you believe that absolutely? Well, because you just undid your entire argument by stating something absolutely. So 51% disagree with moral relativism. And so what we have, to be honest, is a rise in, again, what I would call American paganism. Very spiritual, we're in tune with the trees and the mountains and guardian angels and prophetic dreams and, heck, even angels and demons and personal visits from God. But it's not about Jesus. Jesus. 
It's about whatever you want it to be. You can mix and match. You'll probably end up all right in the end. This is American paganism. And so the, the young generation, as we see, is now understanding because they hate theological instruction, though they listen to the nonsense in the colleges, and, and they, 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 they loathe this idea of this public faith. And so faith has become a public enemy. But then what they'll say is that, no, faith is actually a, a private endeavor. It's a gift for me. And again, what, what, what they're not understanding is that God himself does the exact same thing. Our faith, the faith worth contending for, is one that is never to be imposed, but always to be proposed. We can't impose our faith on others. We can't. But you can always propose your faith to others. That's what God does. He doesn't force our hand. That's no relationship you want to be in. You're going to love me whether you like it or not. He says, I love you and I want you to love me in return. And so the, the, the young generation especially is gripping with this idea that, that faith is actually a public enemy but, and it's a private gift. And so they're playing both cards because they want it both ways. It's for me, it's about Jesus. Okay, I get it. You can, you can throw the name at me a couple times. I get it and I'm down with that. But, but that doesn't have anything to do outside Sunday morning. It doesn't have anything to do with my family and my friends. It doesn't have anything to do with my internet activity. It doesn't have anything to do with my gossip session with my girlfriends on Friday night when the guys are out of town. It's nothing to do with any of that. It's a private thing. I don't bring it out. And I think it was, I know it was, it was Don Carson that said, the first generation believes something. The second or the next generation assumes it. The third forgets it. And the fourth denies it. And so what you're seeing is pretty much the fullness of that, especially those of you who have been around around longer than myself. You've seen that back in the day, the Billy Grahams, the Chuck Smiths, the J.I. Packers, those guys, you see, we're about four generations deep from that. And so we're not even just actively ignoring the gospel, we're representing an affront to it. And so the young generation says, look, we're actually rejecting it, neglecting it, We're pushing back on it. It's not that we don't even care. It's not that we're apathetic. We're beyond that. Now we're hostile to the gospel. That's why you get the middle finger when you hold up a sign as vague as praying for life. Who's praying for death? Anyone? Like, what what is that guy thinking? He's thinking faith is a public enemy, only a private affair. And so, again, I think we're seeing this. At first it was believed Next, it was assumed, it's forgotten, now it's being denied. And when he says this, he says, Beloved, I'm sorry, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. And by the faith, he's not talking about a personal faith, he's talking about the essential truths of the gospel. And what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Jesus, all centered around Jesus, Right? I'd say five parts. The whole Bible broken into five big chapters. Okay, some of you heard me do this before. I'd say the gospel is this. Remember creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation, restoration, or consummation. Okay? Creation, fall, reconciliation, or redemption. Sorry, totally screwed it all up. Start over. Wipe your brains, right? Creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation, consummation. So the gospel is that we were created for his glory, that we rebelled and fell from him, that Jesus swooped into human history on our cosmic rescue mission, 
redeemed us on the cross. We now have a time of reconciliation where it says in Romans that even the earth is groaning to be reconciled to God. He's, he's currently reconciling all things to himself because in the end, he's gonna consummate the whole thing. That's Revelation, woo, right? You guys should get way more excited about Revelation, right? You're like, that Jesus scares me, okay? <laughs> So Jesus of Revelation, right? That's the gospel. And so those truths in five parts all centered around Jesus, the crux of which is the cross. The crux of which is the cross. Okay, if you believe it's 2013, you're generally submitting to the fact that something happened about 2,000 years ago. I know it's year 5,000. No one says that. Why? Something happened about 2,000 years ago. Changed everything. Okay, so that's the gospel. It says the faith. He's not talking about your personal faith. He's talking about the essential truths of the gospel. That's what we're to contend for. And so when it comes to this understanding of contending earnestly for the faith, a lot of guys will say you can, you can contend positively and negatively. And I agree with this. I just think it lacks a certain practical application. So you'll say you can positively contend for things by apologetics, by discipleship, by evangelism. And I get that. Things you're doing. And then negatively, you can contend for it by not participating in things. Right? And so you're not doing this. You're not doing that. You're, you're you know... I'm not going to buy that movie because he said this on that blog or something like that, right? I'm a Christian and you're not doing it and you're positively and negatively ebbing and flowing. I think it fails a certain level of practical application. So I want to give you maybe one tool that will help you. And this can be like your, your lunch after this, like your discussion, right? You guys can just write, write out a list because I'm clearly a nerd for lists, right? And so you can just go to lunch and you can throw these three categories and just say, where do we start seeing this stuff? Because the idea that Jude is trying to come across is like, look, you have to be contending for this on a daily basis. The word in the Greek means continuously. It's not like there was contention during Jude's days and now we're good. It's contending continuously for the faith. I want to show you one mechanism by which you can begin to process how to contend with common culture. All right, it looks like this. So when you're contending, you can do one of three things. You can reject, you can receive, and you can redeem. Okay, now for some of you, this is the first time you've been in church and a slide said porn. Okay? It's the first time you've ever seen a slide with porn and Instagram on it. And it's certainly the only time in human history it said porn, Instagram, and metal, okay? Some of you are like, does he do sculptures or something? We'll talk about it, okay? When you contend, you do one of three things as a Christian. We made it an alliteration. You just remember the three R's, okay? Keep in mind, Paul understood this. He talked about contextualizing the gospel. Jesus contextualized the gospel. Jude is challenging us to also contend for it in the same regard. The first thing you can do is you can reject it. There are things in culture that just need to be flat out rejected. There's no question about it. It's porn. You can't do Christian porn. You can't. You can't like get married couples that are committed to Jesus, have them sign a faith statement and start filming. You can't do Christian porn. Okay? It had, now, can you do sex within a Christian marriage? Heck yes. Right? You can do sex in a Christian manner. You can do it in a, in a non-Christian manner too. Porn is always to be rejected. People, why do you keep bringing up porn? You know why? Because every time I do, more men come forward. So, so now the guys are like, I'm not coming forward anymore. If you just get them to shut up about it. <laughs> right? You know why? You've seen I like stats. I've seen the numbers, gentlemen. Ladies, I've seen the rising number for you. This is a sin that grips us. See, we like with Thousand Oaks, we're all going, yeah, about 10 o'clock at night, that's when Thousand Oaks really lights up. And all the screens come on. 
I've seen the percentages of pastors that are struggling with porn. Pastors that aren't having sex with their wives. Why? Because they're more committed to their laptop. It's terrible. It's disgusting. Stop bringing it up. No, I'm going to keep bringing it up. I'm going to keep bringing up porn. It is something that must be rejected. It's an offense to the gospel. It's an offense. It's the only estate that was created before the law. When everything was perfect, God made marriage. Before the law, it was perfect. And that's what we contend for. And we do it on the marriage front, and we do it on the porn front just as fervently. Some things need to be received. These are things that I say, are, dare I say, are just morally neutral. Instagram, Twitter. Some people are like, well, the church shouldn't do Instagram. It's not biblical. Well, neither is driving a car, but you didn't mind doing that this morning. It's not, it's not biblical. Just because it's not in the Bible doesn't mean it's sinful. I don't, I don't partake. That's worldly. So is wearing clothes for crying out loud, right? Right? When it was perfect, everyone was naked. You notice that? Read Genesis 1. Everyone naked. Then it got bad, clothes came in. Worldly, right? Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Some of you think this is like, this is stuff Christians cannot do. No, this is Christians, thing, things that the church can receive because it's agnostic. It's a technology, it's a mode, right? I read an article, I think it was Harvard Business Review or something, and I fully, as a social marketer and a marketing director, I fully agree with it theologically. I've studied it. Jesus would have a Facebook. I've seen it. I saw the article. It must be true. It was on the internet, right? (laughs) Jesus would utilize common modes. He would. He did, right? So Jesus rejected things, did he not? He showed up to the temple, made a whip, what? To do what? Get violent. Some of you are like, no, it just says he made a whip. He didn't say, really? He walked around and said, I might use this. <laughs> Keep going, I might use this. No, Jesus showed up at church, made a whip, got violent, drove everyone out, threw cash on the floor. That's a gangster move, by the way. When you're just throwing money around church, why did he do that? Because he rejected the affront on his bride, the church. He rejected it. But he received certain cultural contextualizations. Right? He showed up and he says, look, there was a farmer and he had some seed. Now, that wouldn't play here in Thousand Oaks. It wouldn't. You'd be like, hey, I think there's a church uh, in Camarillo that wants to hear this message. Right? He'd show up and say, hey, there's a guy that's trying to decide between an Audi and a Lexus. We're like, oh, interesting. <laughs> what did he do? <laughs> right? That's what he would have done. He would have contextualized the message. That's Okay. He received it. He received a modern contextualization. He would have used Facebook, okay? Relax. He wouldn't have clicked on any ads, but he would have used it, right? So he re- you can receive it. And the redemption, the things that you can redeem, that of course points to Christ. This is where you come in and you say, something the world is using for evil, I'm gonna use for the good of the gospel. And so you can reject things from culture. You can receive things and utilize things from culture. And then there are things to which you need to help redeem. And this is that fourth chapter we're in right now, that reconciliation, where we're just being given time. We're being given time to be active agents in God's reconciliation. And yeah, you're supposed to be redeeming what it means to be a business leader. You're supposed to be redeeming what it means to be a student. You're supposed to be redeeming what it means to be a construction worker and a lawyer and a parent and a child, right? You're supposed to be redeeming that. I put metal up there. Now, it took everything in me not to actually play a song for you guys, okay? I, but I'm not going to. I got it all out at the college ministry last night, okay? A lot of you don't know 
that the metal scene, metal music, guys that sound like they're throwing up into the microphone, they're yelling, they're screaming, heavy, is currently being led by Christian bands. You had, you, most of you have no clue about that. I'm here to tell you that the greatest, the most fastest growing bands right now in the metal scene are Jesus-loving, Jesus-proclaiming, gospel-centered metal bands. This is not something you need to reject because it's intrinsically sinful. I saw two members from a band called August Burns Red come to a college conference. They said, look, we get it all the time. We're signing autographs and a mom comes up and stands there like this with her kid. She says, I need you to know I see the devil when you sing. And Jake Lures, the singer of August Burns Red, goes, ma'am, I just want you to know that I'm screaming about Jesus. I don't believe it. She rejected it. She thought that just the mode could never be redeemed. And you see his bands like August Burns Red, Sleeping Giant, Fit for a King, The Devil Wears Prada, Betraying the Martyrs. These are the biggest bands running the biggest tours. You follow their Facebook pages, pre-concert, what are they doing? They're in the back, huddled, praying. August Burns Red comes to Warp Tour in Ventura just a few months ago. My buddy went, he said they were the only band that had to say nothing to get the entire crowd to go ballistic. That's how good their music is. All the other bands say, I want you to get rowdy, I want you to get a pill, I want you to slime into each other like morons. Let's get bloody, let's get nuts. August Burns Red goes, uh, hi, we're August Burns Red, this song is about Jesus, go. And then they go nuts, and everyone goes ballistic. And guess what happens when that song ends? We'd like to tell you about Jesus. And all the metalheads go, dude, their music is so good, I gotta at least stay for this. And they listen. Who are you preaching to? Your Christian friends? The metal bands are out there in front of thousands of metalheads. Chuck Smith didn't start a church with a bunch of proper evangelicals. He started with a bunch of hippie drug addicts. And so there's elements in culture that you need to actively redeem. My favorite happens to be metal, right? Some of you are like, how you get so worked up on a Sunday? Probably because I listened to metal that morning, right? You don't have to like it. My wife hates it. We're going to the college ministry. I'm like, just give me one song last night. We're like, plug it in, listen to it. Oh, they're screaming hallelujah. She's like, it just sounds like they're throwing up, right? (laughs) She can't stand it. I'm not saying this is an integral part of your Christian walk, but it's an illustration that these bands, and you see them on the video blogs and the podcasts, these guys are sitting next to drugged out musicians and they're ministering to them. And they're on the front. And you know why they're on the front? Because they do their craft well. And suddenly the culture is looking to the church for inspiration, not the church looking to the culture for inspiration because it properly understands some things are to be rejected, some things are to be received, and some things are just to flat out be redeemed because that's what Christ did. And so that's what we mean when we say contending for the faith. Verse four, it says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. See, the the letter's gonna build. It's gonna get pretty gnarly. You want to come back next week, okay? It's going to be a big chunk. It's going to be a punch in the gut to false doctrines and preaches, okay? And it says, long ago we're marked out for this condemnation ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I see this as the two sides of the spectrum, okay? You've got the separatists, you've got the culturalists, You've got the people that abuse the grace of God as a license to sin. And the word lewdness always, in the definition, always has a sexual undertone. Always has a sexual undertone. Are we going back to porn? Yeah, probably. (laughs) 
always. Because you say, you know what? I'm saved by grace through faith, not of works. Tell you what, it, it, it's all been taken care of. It's finished. I get it. So it actually doesn't matter. You don't get it. You're abusing the grace of God. You're abusing it as a license to sin. And Paul says what? Should sin abound or should sin continue so that grace may abound? Certainly not. Certainly not. You don't have to stop watching porn, gentlemen, in order to God love you. But when you truly embrace the fact that he does, you want to stop. Ezekiel 36 says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you new desires. You just have to ask for them. I'll preach that every day till the day I die. We serve a God that just flat out changes your emotions. I don't, I, I feel, then just ask for a different feeling about it. He'll do it. He'll change it. Took me 17 years before I finally humbly, submissively said, God, make me sick of my porn addiction. And he did. It took a little while, but he did. He's gonna, I'm going to turn that into something that you're, just, you're sick over. And then you're not going to be able to be arrogant when you preach about it and you work with the college students that are dealing with it. You're not going to be able to be arrogant. You were there for as long as they've been alive. And so you take grace and you make it lewd because you abuse the grace of God. You don't understand grace. You think it's a license to sin. Those are what's known as theological liberals. I'm a conservative. I just, no, you're a theological liberal when you abuse the grace of God. So you know it's by grace of the same, he's gonna forgive me and then you crack the laptop. You're a theological liberal. I don't care about politics. You're a theological liberal. You abuse the grace of God. Then you got the other folks that deny Jesus and that's the legalists. And so you got liberals and legalists. You can call them culturalists and separatists. Those are the two camps, by the way, that wanted to destroy Jesus in the gospel. See how those factions work out? The only time these two ever hang out is because they both hate Jesus. And so then you swing over here to the legalists and they say, look, they either deny Jesus one of two ways. They either flat out deny that he's God or they say, no, look, he is God, but Jesus is the only way to salvation. You are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, but that disassociative conjunctive, right? All that I didn't actually mean. And then now we're gonna start getting into what you need to be doing. See, you're going to do things when you receive the grace of God through the Holy Spirit that you wouldn't do otherwise because he's gripped you. The gospel has gripped you. You're now contending for a faith that's true and it's your own. It's not your parents. It's not the pastors. And so your life begins to change, not because you have to, but because you realize he was there first. And he took all that to the cross. And so you see both these sides. You see the, they, they either deny God or they, they deny Jesus by saying, yeah, he is God, but... And then they list things out. And so you got the liberals and you got the legalists. And so the call for the Christian is to contend. As Jesus did, right down the middle. He was right down the middle the whole time, right? All the factions would always war around him. And they would always swing one way or the other. They wanted to abuse the grace of God to get away with their sin. Or they wanted to add to the word of God to control. And Jesus sat right in the middle and they couldn't stand him for it. And so they hung him on a cross. It was religious people that did that. It wasn't like sinners at the well. We should string this guy up. Why? He was really nice to me. It was the religious people that were affronted. And so when we contend, we don't become religious. We become infectious. Because we contend, we're rejecting and you're explaining it to your kids. Look, sometimes mommy and daddy just have to flat out reject things in culture. 
And we do so because it's anti-gospel and doesn't bring glory to God. Sometimes, you know, we can, mom, there's a lot of crazy stuff on Facebook. I can't believe you got an account, probably just to stalk me, right? And then, and then you say, yeah, but, but we, can, we can receive this and use it properly. Or sometimes daddy has to go into dark places in the world to redeem things. Sometimes daddy has to go into the jail to minister. Sometimes Jesus, God has to, or sometimes daddy has to go into bad situations at work and, and redeem what it means to be a businessman and say no. I had to say no last week. Why don't we just do this? Why don't we just write this sort of stuff? I said no because it's called lying. It's the second time that poor frame has gotten broken. <laughs> Everyone, there's a sign out the middle door. Okay, so, right? Sometimes you have to go into dark places and redeem it because guess what? Jesus came into a dark place from another culture and said, you know what? I'm gonna redeem an entire people. We're not Jesus, but we are the image of Jesus. And so when we contend, we become more conformed to the image of Christ because that's exactly what he did. We reject certain areas of culture, we receive others, and we redeem as pictures, as images of Christ. And that's what communion is about. Communion is about us remembering that Jesus came into a dark place You were in your sin. I'm telling you, you cannot get out of it. The gospel is not that you can overcome your sin. It's not. A lot of you have been made to believe you come to church to learn how to overcome your sin. You should be so excited to hear that Jesus already did. That's the gospel. The communion represents the fact that Jesus came into a dark place, redeemed a dark people, and now have called us to be lights to culture for his glory, not ours. Jude got it. He's gonna push us through this book. Pastor Brett called him Jude the dude. It's a good way to go. He's gonna, this is a dude letter. Ladies, still come, right? This is a dude letter. But we come now to the throne of grace. We come now to the communion that epitomizes that Jesus showed up, took our sin to the cross, and put it in the grave forever. And so the team's gonna come up You're gonna be released by rows and I just want you to remember that. This is a part of the Christian equipping is to remember what Jesus did in his redemption for us all. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do do thank you for that. I'm also mindful of Pastor Chuck who right now actually gets to see the faith that we're discussing right now. His faith became sight just a few short days ago and he is not sad in the least. The earth's loss is heaven's gain in that regard. But Chuck got it. He understood it. He contended from the mid-60s to his dying day. He contended for the gospel. He was criticized for it. He was mocked just as you were criticized and mocked. The difference is when you went to the grave, you completed everything. When Chuck went to the grave, it was on your account, Jesus. And so we thank you for that promise. We thank you for this call from Jude to contend for the faith. I pray that the church would be emboldened, that we would be strengthened to reject, to receive, and to redeem all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.